Welcome to the Chat Cave, good listener, and happy birthday. Coming up next, this episode marks two years of Ramble Madness, and I'm pretty pumped that you've decided to join me. What's that you say? You forgot to bring a gift. Well, fear not, my friends, because in lieu of presents, I would like you to open up your web browser, head to comingupnext.com.au, click on the iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean button, hit subscribe, leave a five-star rating, and make an awesome review. Pretty cheap present, if you ask me. Now, you've probably noticed that the theme song has been a little modified. That's because my good brother, the former pantsless producer, Nick Marks, has created an absolute gem of a theme song to celebrate Kun turning two. He performs it alongside Yotam Ben-Or, who's on the harmonica, and Almog Shavit, who's on double bass. A huge coming up next thank you to those guys. And my guest this week... Rabbi Mendel Kalmanson is the rabbi of Beit Baruch and the executive director of Chabad in Belgravia, London. Mendel was an editor at the Judaism website Chabad.org and is also the author of popular books Seeds of Wisdom and A Time to Heal. Given that a huge part of the previous 103 episodes of this podcast have been about me seeking people's spiritual and religious roots and how they've impacted their creativity, I thought it was about time I dug a little deeper into my own identity. You can find Rabbi Mendel's writings at Chabad.org and his books are available at gemstore.com. So, now that you're all subscribed up, please enjoy. Coming up next, Turning Two. I didn't realize that uh, that the the synagogue here would be so close to um, Buckingham Palace. I, uh, as I was walking here, I saw the the changing of the guard happening, and I thought, "Oh, that's why the traffic's so bad in London." <laughs> Just got a procession of horses and guards walking through the middle of the city at, at midday. And gawkers, you know, a lot of tourists also stopping what they do. Yeah, what was the kind of thinking behind establishing the synagogue in this particular part of London? Well, okay, there's a bit of the history, and I don't know how much you know about Chabad, but essentially Chabad is a movement inspired by the uh, Lubavitch Rebbe, Blessed Memory, who picked up, essentially, and tremendously expanded the vision of his father-in-law, the previous Lubavitch Rebbe, who, upon coming to the States, recognized that the Jewish community was becoming increasingly polarized, uh, and, and essentially um, s- structured by the, the very religious in the, on the one side who were becoming more and more insular, uh, trying to recreate the ghetto, so to speak, maintaining the Yiddish, the dress, the, 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 the complete isolation from the rest of society, and then the rest of American Jewry, by and large, who were trying to assimilate. And uh, either because of, just after the Holocaust, tremendous grief, sorrow, and a... Uh, and a lapse of faith, or because the opportunities of America were that much, that more varied and, and, and uh, appealing. And so they were fast becoming part of the American mainstream society. And at that time, actually, there was, uh, there was a choice people had to make, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s in the States, about religion versus careerism. You know, you had to, sometimes many people we know, 
if they were devout and Shabbat observers, they would work from Sunday to Friday, and then when they came back in on Sunday, they were told, sorry, there's no job for you. So he saw that the Jewish community was fragmenting, and a li- one, one could even say that in the spirit of, of, of the founder of Hasidism at large, the Baal Shem Tov, who in his day and age recognized a schism within Jewish communal life, the elite versus the commoner, etc., sought to create a bridge, sought to create some dialogue, some connection. And uh, he did so by inspiring his group, his Hasidim, to go out and uh, basically devote their lives to building up Jewish life in the most remote, far-flung, um, and very often hostile uh, environments without any Jewish infrastructure, which is, of course, seen to be terribly risky. And he was criticized by the other, by many of the Orthodox, or, or ultra-Orthodox, I think the media likes to call them, <laughs> just his own discussion, um, leadership, saying, how, 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 how can you risk taking young people and sending them off to place without a mikvah, without Jewish schooling, without kosher, etc., etc.? And he did so because he really, if you listen to him, if you really listen, if you hear the conversations he had with people, he, the way he saw it was there was a fire raging, and you don't think when, before jumping into the burning building to take out children or live people. You just jump into the fire. That's why he couched that era. It's very interesting. In many letters, in many conversations, a fire is raging. That's what he would say. We are firemen. He literally said that at one point. There's a very interesting story, which I published in, in one of the books that I put out called Seeds of Wisdom, where someone from a more mainstream, I guess, typical orthodox institution, a rabbi perhaps, I don't remember the detail, came to the rabbi and he says, you know, it's amazing what you're doing, but he said, in my view, you're too quick to take someone who returned to faith and put them out there as a teacher. You're too quick to utilize, if you will, uh, you know, newcomers, returnees, Baal Tshuva in the Hebrew, as spokespeople for religion. And, and sometimes, you know, the things they say are not so developed, and etc. Very interestingly, the Rebbe in classic form was always very open to feedback. And he said, you know what, you, you make a good point, he said. But he said, you know, when a fire is raging, everyone gets out there, takes a pail of water and tries to put it out. It's not only the firemen, the ones who were trained to go out there and try to put out a fire. This was an amazing concept. Because he basically saw in everyone the potential to lead, to teach. Famously, there's a rabbi in, uh, in, in, in Australia, a wonderful rabbi. And uh, before he became a shaliach, his wife, in a private audience with the rabbi, was with him and expressed maybe a little bit of reservation about whether you know, he, he was ready yet. Something to that effect. And the rabbi said that the job makes the individual. In other words, sometimes it's the job that brings out the talent. And elsewhere, and I believe maybe even in that setting, he said something to the effect of, if you know Aleph, teach Aleph. So, and just to veer for a moment on this, there's an amazing story, one I love very much, where Menachem Begin came to see the Rebbe. And the Rebbe told him, at the end of the conversation, I have a personal request, a favor to ask of you. He said, what is it? He said, there's a letter we received from a girl in France. She's dating someone who isn't Jewish to the consternation of her family, etc. And nothing they say, no argument they'll make will, will influence her to come, you know, to try to marry within the faith. He said, but I happen to know, the Rebbe said, that she's a huge fan of yours. She's a great admirer of you, Menachem Begin. He said, I, forgive me for, I, I'm, I'm using my own language here because I wasn't there, but this is the story he later told. But the Rebbe basically said, would you consider stopping off in France and speaking to this woman. 
on your way back to Israel. And Begin agreed. Amazingly. Yeah, wow. But he was, there's a beautiful relationship he had with the Rebbe. I don't know if you know, he came to 770 rather than the other way around, which created a lot of buzz in the media. And Israel and the Shimbet were not happy about it. And he said, you know, anyhow, the fact is, he stopped off, he spoke to the girl, and of course he had a major impact on this girl, and she, she ended up marrying Jewish, etc., which is, to me, an amazing story. Because Menachem Begin was a very proud Jew, and he was a traditional Jew. And the Rebbe actually spoke openly about how Begin was one of the first to bring Jewish pride back into the equation of Jewish leadership, of Israeli leadership. But he wasn't, I wouldn't call him a shaliach. <laughs> he wasn't someone you looked at and said, this is a man who's, who's made it his life mission to promote and advocate Jewish values and marrying in the faith. This wasn't, this wasn't his spiel. This wasn't his gig. But the Rebbe saw him and said, you know what? You can advance. You can put out a fire. You can go ahead. Let's, jo let's join hands and see where we can work together on this. So, anyhow, I, I digress. <laughs> this is going to be one long muse or oh, rambling. That's amazing. I love it. Um, but but just to come back to the point. Before you, before yes, you go on, would you mind uh, if I just asked you, um, just for the for context for the listeners who may not be familiar with, sure. um, with the Rebbe, with Menachem sure. Mendel, would you mind kind of just um, briefly, sort of <laughs> as briefly as one could? <laughs> how many hours, how many days do we yeah, have? Yeah, yeah. Briefly, so... I guess just contextualizing Contextualizing, okay. So the, the Rebbe was born, he, he was one of the... Okay, he's the seventh in a dynasty called Chabad Lubavitch. Lubavitch is the city in white Russia where they spent some time. It actually means city of love. And that's quite apropos because the very ethos of Chabad and Lubavitch is in the words of the former chief rabbi of, of, the, of the UK. He was so eloquent, such an eloquent... Uh, a spokesperson for, for, for many beautiful, for Judaism and for values and diversity and such. He once put it this way, he said that the Rebbe made it his mission to search out every Jew in love the way they were once hunted down in hate. So the ethos of Lubavitch, of, of love, is very much uh, essential. Avat Yisrael, the principle to go out and love your fellow as yourself, was not just a slogan, it wasn't something in the abstract, it was something so concrete, so real, so visceral. I mean, there's just an amazing thing I came across recently because I'm doing research on a book now. And he had a stroke uh, in 78. And it was because he carried the burden of an entire community. And he did so himself personally. He would open every letter by hand. Uh, and I, I heard the story from the person who this happened with who actually suggested maybe I can send you, a, a, there's a machine that does opens letters, a letter opener. So you don't have to actually open each letter by hand. And he initially said, no, it will make too much noise. He gave various excuses until it became clear because the fellow was very persistent, as you know, Hasidim tend to be. <laughs> and he tracked down the manufacturer and had them produce a, 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 ma, a make that was not noisy. He took care of all the specifications. And then, and then the Rebbe essentially shared with him, you know, in his modest way, never initially spoke about matters of personal character. But he then said, you know, he said that many times people, saw, they seal their letters with tears. And he said, what does a machine know about tears? He says, I need to do that by hand. And in another story, which is printed in the introduction to the Tanya, by Rabbi Nissen Mandel, who was a great man, and he translated the Tanya into English. In the introduction, he says a, 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 a somewhat of a similar story where uh, the Rebbe signed every letter by hand. And many, many of the letters he would send out were like sort of generic templates, like for a bar mitzvah, for an upsharon, or for a brit, for a wedding. So these were thousands a year, like literally thousands and thousands, because as the movement grew, 
so did the strain of personal interaction with all of those individuals. So they, the secretariat told the Rebbe, you know, there's, we can get your signature turned into a rubber stamp, and so it would appear that you're signing personally, even though you aren't. And obviously, you know this is done. There's something called the presidential pen, etc., etc. So the Rebbe then said, I couldn't do that, he said. That's inauthentic. Moreover, he said, how would you feel if you received a letter stamped by rubber, right? It would lack that, and these are some of those, so, so in that respect, the personal came through. But going back to the ethos of the love of Lubavitch Avot Yisrael, so when he wasn't well, the doctors were very concerned because this was really taking a toll on him. The amount of letters he was trying to respond to, even during that very... Uh, that's the, while he was healing, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a very, you know. Anyhow, so they told him, you have to stop this. Because every letter he would read, and remember, people were writing about loss, about tragedy, about grief. I published a book called A Time to Heal, which collects uh, 40 years of correspondence, interactions, etc. A Time to Heal, subtext is the Lubavitch Rebbe's um, response to loss and tragedy. And so many people turn to me because as people do, they tend to go to the rabbi when they're in trouble, when they're hurting, or when they have philosophical, theological issues or breakdown in relationship, family matters, and so forth. And he absorbed that pain. He absorbed it. He it was deeply empathetic. And, and, he t and they said, you have to cut down. And he said something amazing. I've never seen someone, t um, I never saw like authors who write about the rabbi, speak about the rabbi, pay attention to this. And I want to bring this to people's attention. He said something like this. He said, you know, when someone's addicted to something, if they stop cold turkey, it's not good for them. He said, I'm addicted to responding to these letters. Wow. Oh, wow. How, how amazing is that? I mean, we live in an era of addiction, my friend, right? Absolutely. And well, what are we busy medicating or self-medicating? Well, we're busy being addicted to, to, to feeding ourselves. or to, you know, Basically, it's inward. It's, it's self-centered. And he was addicted to other-centered, which is just amazing. That's a, these are little, little anecdotes and snippets to give you a sense of his, his, his legendary and, and uh, awesome, I think, moral and empathetic imagination. But just to come back to his biography just a little bit. So he was born in the Ukraine. His father was a tremendous spiritual giant, a Kabbalist in the truest sense, a master of Kabbalah, author on, on, on Kabbalah, uh, but also a very staunch Jew. And he was ultimately, um, ultimately was sent into exile and died, passed away while in exile because of his staunch positions on matters of Jewish tradition, which the government wanted to somehow compromise in any event, he lived through pogroms. He lived through times where his home became like a, 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 a station or a point for refugees. He went to the Sorbonne. He was in Berlin. So he had this insatiable intellectual curiosity and studied the sciences. And he was an engineer by profession. In any event, one thing that was pretty much on a personal, you know, sort of on a personal level, very much an accompanying character trait was his modesty. People didn't really know, and he made every effort to ensure they wouldn't find out. In any event, he marries the daughter of the previous Rebbe, which is, of course, uh, a tremendous, tremendous zechut uh, merit, and he was, he was uh, always a tremendous disciple of the, of the previous Rebbe. Anyhow, he escapes during the war, comes to the States, and then reestablishes uh, the Chabad dynasty, or takes after his father, takes the mantle of leadership after a year of resisting it 
and then turned Chabad into a, literally a household name in the Jewish community, whereas it was once, uh, you know, one group among many of Hasidim, which itself is one strain of Jewish practice or Jewish, I wouldn't say practice, but it's certain, there's a certain culture, a Hasidic culture, that is quite different to the more Lithuanian culture. I don't want to go into that right now. It's a whole discussion itself. But either way, he, he did so, like I said initially, by really galvanizing the Hasidim to leave the, 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 the Crown Heights shtetl, as it were, where all of their spiritual amenities were provided for. Uh, you know, you walk down Kingston Avenue, you can literally live there for, for your entire lifetime and be sufficient and just enjoy tremendous spiritual uh, environment. And he would preside over uh, the community and the congregation through talks that, that brought about some, the, the oneness within all dimensions of Torah. I, I, I digress quite, quite heavily. So the point is that those are little, a few notes about his personal life. But he comes to the States, and that's when really things take off because he invites his Hasidim to go out to all parts of the world, build Jewish communities and life. I think looking back, it's safe to say, although we will never know, that if not for his efforts, which were later picked up on by other, other groups within Judaism, it became much more mainstream to do what's called Kira, which is outreach. Some of the predictions of people like, for example, Alan Dershowitz, in this book, The Vanishing American Jew, or Look Magazine in 1964, it said that in like 2020 or maybe 50, the only remaining Jews would be observant Jews, right? So if you want to put it in historical context, I really think a lion's share, uh, without a question, a lion's share of the diverse the diversity of the Jewish communal life and engagement and of the notion that, that a Jew is a Jew and that we're all part of, you know, one, one people and that one's Jewishness is not defined necessarily by their level of knowledge or observance or affiliation. It's more of a spiritual dynamic, a soul that yearns to connect. It just needs the proper facility, it needs the proper uh, environment. Non-judgmentalism, the not all or nothing approach, right? These are some of the things that have entered the consciousness of the mainstream Jewish community so that today, Baruch Hashem, Every Jew can and should be made welcome and feel at home in the Jewish community at the Jewish Seder table, so to speak, because he, he very often put it in like, he had an amazing ability to tell stories. I don't think people realize that. He's an ultimate storyteller in the sense that Passover would come and he'd say, there, yes, there are four sons around the table we know. There's the, the wise, the wicked, the simple, the one who doesn't know to ask. But he said, there's a fifth son the one who doesn't even show up at the table. <laughs> we have to go out and find the fifth son. So he's telling the story. And all of a sudden, you're at your Seder and you're like, you're feeling good. You have the wicked one, right? He's like, no, he's engaged. He's asking the questions. Okay, he's challenging. He's not, maybe he's rebelling. But he's at the table. One of my favorite stories is that I think it was the UJA in the 60s. They came to see him. And they said, we have a fantastic idea to commemorate the six million lost in the Holocaust. And uh, he said, what is it? He said, he said, well, we want this year to encourage Jewish households all around the world to take an empty chair and place it at the Seder table to commemorate the loss, the void, the emptiness, the souls that could and should have been present at our Seder today but cannot and are not no longer present with us as a result of the horrific atrocities of, of the Nazis, etc. And they said, you know, you're a leader of hundreds of thousands. He said, if you would get on board, imagine, this would really take on tremendous range 
Uh, and he said, look, the, the intention, I'm paraphrasing, he said the intention is, is really, intention's great, but he said, I would tweak the idea. I would say, instead of taking an empty chair and leaving it empty, take that chair and fill it with a Jew who would not otherwise attend the Seder. <laughs> There's no better way to commemorate the Holocaust than ensure that the very, very thing that Hitlerism came to eliminate, to annihilate, which is the sense of Jewishness. If you read his writings, he was incredibly articulate about conscience uh, is a Jewish invention, about Ten Commandments is a Jewish invention. The idea of what he was out to eradicate was the sense of conscience, was the values that Jewish people represented. He, he understood the Jew, Jewish people, I think, better than a lot of, I, I feel horrible saying this, but better than a lot of Jews understand what Jewish is. Sometimes we have to go to the anti-Semites to understand more about ourselves. Yeah. And I say it because we're, 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 we're very conscious and very sensitive about tooting our own horn, and, and, and so we don't see certain things. We don't allow ourselves to see it, and we definitely don't allow ourselves to articulate it. I think in his introduction to a book called Radical Then, Radical Now, Jonathan Sachs writes this precise point. He went to the States uh, to ask 50 leading rabbis about what it means to be Jewish and why be Jewish in today's day and age, etc. And he said he was horrified by the responses. They were real, a large portion of them were fairly lame and inarticulate, and like they didn't really, they weren't compelling. And he then brings a bunch of quotes from non-Jewish philosophers and thinkers, including Paul Johnson, including Mark Twain even, and, and, and Pascal. And there are many of these. When they talked about the Jew, they did not have the, the, the negative, the, the inferiority complex or the syndrome of, you know, we have to be, we have to, you know, oh, the self-deprecating. So yeah, we have yeah, to be yeah. quiet. We can't be chosen. We have to move as far away from that. So they were able to get straight to the point and talk about Jews in a way that is truly remarkable. Leo Tolstoy talked about the Jews as the, the symbol of the eternity. Uh, you know, we were called immutable or, or the, the, you know, the prov people of providence. There are many different observations they make. In any event, the Rebbe's view was that the way to commemorate the Holocaust is not to emphasize the, law, the void, but, but to, to try to really get to what it was that the Holocaust was about and, 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 and counter that, both in terms of Jewish continuity, but also he spoke very much about the idea of the seven Noahide laws, which was one of his great campaigns, where he encouraged his chassidim to go out and in every given opportunity and interaction with people who weren't of the Jewish faith to, to share with them uh, a universal code of ethics uh, described and outlined in the Bible, in the Torah, given to Noah, who's the father of... Uh, mankind post-flood, to, to, you know, basic principles of good life, meaningful life, and ethical life. And in fact, uh, this might surprise you, but he, he made tremendous efforts, not just for the Jewish community, but for the general uh, American population, which is why this is one of those facts that are just astounding. There is, a, there is a day called Education Day in the United States, just like there are various different days. And Every year, Education Day USA is established on the secular English equivalent to the Hebrew calendar date of the Rebbe's birthday. Wow. And, and sitting presidents will write a letter. It's, it's just, think about it. The face of education in the United States of America is a Hasidic rabbi who's dressed in, in Hasidic garb, spoke Yiddish as a primary language, communicated primarily in, in Yiddish, and led a group of, if you, you might think from the outside, of, 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 of ultra-Orthodox Hasidim. But no, not at all. Even these United States presidents came to appreciate 
the far-reaching and universal reach uh, and, and, and emphasis of his teachings. And there's a lot of correspondence between him and Carter, Reagan, and so on. Uh, just one story on that note, and then we'll come back to your question. There was a senator, I forget his name, who came to see the Rebbe, and the you know, political leaders would come to see the Rebbe, and they'd either discuss certain ideas, or I guess some of them really wanted to get his, his support, his vote. Um, but he, he typically remained apolitical. In any event, this one fellow is coming there, and afterwards the Rebbe asked him, can I ask you for a favor? And he thought to himself, oh, here it comes, you know? He's going to lobby the Lubavitch interests or the interests of his particular constituent uh, in, in, Crown, in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. And, and the Rebbe then surprised him by saying, there, there's a group of, of people living in Manhattan who are very shy and quiet by nature. And they're underrepresented in government. And he said, these are the Chinese people living in Chinatown. And he said, could you make every effort to ensure that they're well represented in, in, in government? Because they're not confident, perhaps, enough to go out and lobby their interests in the way that they should be represented. And he said, I was blown away. <laughs> Here's a chassinic a leading, but he's worried about Chinese people living in Chinatown. And that really, <clears throat> I believe, very much embodies the Rebbe, who who was this paradox of particularism and universalism. He was the staunchest proponent of traditional Judaism. There was no compromise, at least not in terms of the standard. So the aspiration was sky high in terms of religiosity, devout, piety, faith. I mean, unbelievable. But at the same time, he channeled that, that religious passion and focus, not inward but outward, not into simply preserving his own, but creating bridges from the wider Jewish community, as mentioned, and beyond. And it, this, this motivated him to be the only religious Jewish leader I know of in recent history, or going back in time, to ever concern himself with the spiritual and ethical well-being of people outside his faith, of every single human being that he would encounter. Do, do you remember the first your first kind of... Uh, encounter maybe as a as a child or something growing up with his teachings and with because it seems like from what I've read about you that your kind of connection with him um, whether literal or philosophical has really kind of driven your uh, your I don't want to say career but you know this kind of path that you're on well, I was a child. It's hard to remember. I mean, my father would bring me to the gatherings. He would preside over on Shabbat. There were a few thousand people there. There was no microphone. Even if there was, I couldn't, I couldn't understand because he was speaking in Yiddish and about very lofty, nuanced, academic, philosophical, theological matters because that's what he would do. Always bring it down into the practical. But nonetheless, this was, uh, this was beyond me. So as a child, I, I'd have to say it's, it's a funny thing. As a child, I, I, my eyes took in but my mind caught up with what my eyes saw only later on. So it's quite interesting. Uh, it's very interesting when you know someone, but only after they're no longer here, you physically, you, you learn about them mm. and come to fill in the, the gap. And Where did you grow up? Um, New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. So my father's a quite a renowned Talmudic scholar. He's written many books on the Talmud. Very special human being, special mentor. But... Uh, I think I think I'm going to use some, a very vulgar metaphor of of a hero. You know, uh, you know, everyone need, everyone has a hero or needs a hero. You need someone to look up to, someone who inspires you to lift yourself up, to 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 challenge yourself 
and try to reach your potential every day, right? Because there's so much that you, self-motivation can do. You also need to counter that with uh, a role model, someone you, you look to and say, wow, th that's my guiding light. And I think a lot of people are looking for heroes. So today there's a lot of that in celebrity, a lot of that in sports, uh, a lot less so in politics, unfortunately. Not a lot on offer. Well, not I exactly right. And unfortunately, in religious, religious leadership also took quite a big hit with various scandals that have plagued you know, various different institutions. So, so there's a growing need, I think, to have, to have role models, to have people you can look up to. But I, I have to say I was deeply blessed that I was born to a Hasidic family and that I grew up in, in I was marinated, if you will, in the ethos and philosophy of Chabad, of, and, and, and all of that, though, I have to say, would not have impacted me in the way it has unless I had seen or unless I continued to study the Rebbe as an individual. Because, as you might know, you know, all the teachings in the world cannot impact you in the way that one compassionate act, one act of integrity, one act where the facade has been removed, the curtains are opened, and you see a spiritual, godly person. Nothing, no teachings in the world can have that impact. And if, if I think, a lot of, there's a lot of words one would use to describe the Rebbe, but to me the word I would use is ultimate truth. That's a very strong word. Meaning, egolessness, truth, commitment to the cause, to the mission, to the soul, to the essence of this reality according to the philosophical teachings, of Hasidus and Kabbalah, but also to the essence in every human being. Mm. To get to the essence and always remain focused on that, that's the challenge of life. Because life is one long series of distractions pulling us away from the core, from the essence, from that which is, you know, the truly meaningful. What, right? what is that essence and that kind of mission? The, I think it's, it's, it's somewhat different for in most general terms from the Jewish point of view let's say monotheism, is not just the belief that there is an all-powerful deity or ruler to this world, but rather that there's a pervasive oneness within all. Right. So that's what monotheism is really about if you study the works of Hasidism. It's about exposing that oneness within all of existence, all of creation, all of humanity. Okay? So that's something I think in the, most broad, in the broadest terms that could be relevant to every listener. Right? So, that's, so every time you bring down a barrier between yourself and another human being, every time you deconstruct the exclusively materialist narrative uh, that we tell ourselves or we're told by others, right? This, that, or, or, this, or this, the dichotomous look at the world as there's material and there's spiritual, there's body, there's soul. Every time we, we chip away at that, we're exposing an inherent oneness. Uh, you know, every time you look at science and religion, say, "Oh, these are at odds," rather than they're just two sides of the same coin. They're different languages, as it were. Um, you have achieved the purpose for cre the creation of this universe, which, in the Kabbalistic terminology, is one th whose primary um, function is to conceal that oneness, and our primary mission is to discover and reveal that oneness. That's in the most general terms. Judaism does believe that there are different ways to go about this. And when you, know, you say that, yeah. when you talk about that oneness, sorry, I just wanted to sure. hook in on something that affected me personally. Mm. I remember the first time that I went to um, to the Western Wall in, mm -hmm. in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. um, it was only maybe three or four years ago. 
And I had kind of had this aversion to my Jewish identity for a long time. And going and st- just standing in, in that spot was quite a kind of mind-blowing experience in and of itself because just energetically something kind mm. of happened to me. Mm. I was talking to one of the rabbis there who was trying to get me to lay tefillin and I, just, and, I, and I refused and I kept saying no because I didn't, it felt hypocritical for me to do something that I didn't believe in that was so deeply spiritual. And he said, what don't you, what is it that you don't believe? And I said, well, I don't believe that fundamentally that God is this bearded man in the sky. I don't believe the kind of children's stories that I was brought up and that were forced upon me. Mm. And he said, well, that's not what it's about. It's not about a bearded man in the sky. Mm. I don't believe that it's a bearded man in the sky. It's about this right. oneness. It's about we're all, we, we are all one. And, yeah. and, and that really Resonate. was quite a profound moment for me yeah. of... Uh, I guess unshackling and unburdening yeah. myself of these yeah. ideas that had exactly. been placed upon me as a child. Exactly. It's interesting because I have this conversation with people from time to time, and I often find myself saying, "The God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either." Yeah. And there's this, there's actually a story in seeds, one of those seeds of wisdoms, where the Rebbe shares this concept, uh, actually drawing on an analogy from a from a rocket ship. But I'll, I'll give you a copy when we're done. You can see it for yourself. But the point is that I do believe very, very strongly that it's unfortunate when it comes to religion, somehow we, we sort of, we wearily we, we, we outgrow or graduate from our childlike understanding or, in, or you know, mm. of religious ideas and so forth. And it's ironic. It's unfortunate because, you know, in any other sphere of life, of course, we know that unless you're up to date with the latest science, you're behind. And you know you're not you're just not fully aware of the universe as we now can understand it. It's unfortunate when it comes to religion, we we don't make that leap. We don't try to upgrade or graduate and get to the next level of depth. And that is so fundamental to Jewish uh, thought: the notion of constant exploration and constant intellectual pro- probing uh, to upgrade. You know, to upgrade that. And so. Yeah, I, I totally connect to what you're saying. I think it's unfortunate that that um, that that we sort of we have a blind spot. I think because religion also, of course, it triggers the most emotional things in people, the resistance sometimes to to authority, to dogma, etc. You know, there's a friend of mine who who was um, who was uh, trying to get a minion in the Lower East Side, and he goes out the street. Uh, a minion is a quorum of ten men necessary for for certain aspects of a prayer and uh, he goes out there and he stops the fellow and he says excuse me sir are you Jewish the guy says yes I am he says you know can I can I trouble you to join me to, to help make a minion he says I want nothing to do with organized religion so my friend says sir if we were organized we'd have a minion <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so so yeah in any event so so what where, where do we stand in the, in the remaining time that we have I think that there's a few things that I'm, I'm particularly passionate about because this audience is not necessarily Jewish. I think I'd like to talk in more universal terms. Then you have to tell me why you chose this spot. Okay, we can do a round two some, at some point. <laughs> it's a bit of a story. But I think that, that, that there's a number of, of, of shifts and movements in the universe and the world that are creating different re- reactions. So, for example, there's the rise of nationalism. Uh, in my view, is is really the reaction to cultural globalization, rather than just an economic globalization, right? Cultural in the sense that 
you know, as Mark Zuckerberg said in his, 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 his commencement speech at Harvard the other day, um, that millennials define themselves today, their identity is that they are citizens of the world. Now, as, as beautiful as that sounds, and in fact, it, this was the vision of the Jewish prophets. So, so, so the innovators and inventors of universalism, this is the irony of it all, <laughs> is Judaism. I mean, were the prophets. They were busy talking about peace as an ideal over war, about brotherhood, about... They came up with that quote on the UN building, which we would hope, hopefully, becomes... You know, the UN is more, more consistent with the, the, that vision of that one day the swords will be beaten into plowshares, etc., etc. Um, so, the, 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 so, what I wanted to get to is that citizens of the world sounds fantastic, it really does. And, you know, it reminds me of John Lennon's song, Imagine, which I think is the most un Jewish song there exists. <laughs> and I'll explain why, because essentially the thesis. Of, of the Bible of, of secularism, or the Bible of liberalism, perhaps you might say, is, is, um, is this notion that if you only eliminate a few things, the things that distinguish us from one another, then we will have this state of utopia and world peace. For example, if you eliminate religion, if you eliminate the socioeconomic differences, right? If you eliminate the national, meaning a national identity, then we're all going to be kumbaya, we'll love it. it. Communism tried that. Communism tried to eradicate religion and the socioeconomic gap and the national, by, you know, the United, the former Soviet Union. There were so many attempts in our history as human beings to eliminate that which distinguishes us from one another. And they've all failed. And the reason for that, in my view, is because human beings are a combination of two very, very important drives. One of them is particularism, is tribalism, is a personal identity, is a sense of tradition, a belonging to a particular distinct group. It's distinction that drives capitalism very often. It's the sense of to excel, to have more, yes. There's studies done on this, fascinating studies, where they ask two groups of, you know, ask the people, would you prefer, for example, to make 200,000 pounds, but all your peers would make 200,000 pounds, or would you prefer to make 150,000 pounds and all your peers would make 100,000 pounds? And most people who were asked this question chose to make 150, so long as they had 50 more than their peers, which tells you a little bit about human nature, right? Mm. They would have less buying power, but they'd have more distinction. So there is a part of us that craves distinction. And that's not a bad thing if it's channeled in a healthy, correct manner. This was the view of my teacher, the Rebbe. You know, at the same time, we have a universal tendency, that tendency to, super, to, to transcend the differences, to unite, to, 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 to find the, the bridge and the commonality within us all. These are both very real. And I think many movements have chosen one over another. And a fundamental problem, going back to the duality, is seeing these as mutually exclusive, but they're not. Because as I say very often, I believe that the, the more particular and the better you are as a Jew, the better positioned you are to be a citizen of the world, to bring the, 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 the spirituality of Judaism to your family, friends, community, and the wider world. And there's a lot, a lot more to be said about that. But in other words, I think the more true you are to yourself and the more developed you are as a self, and the more you, 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 the more, 
particular you are about your your unique soul, your unique life mission, etc. The stronger and I think the more committed you are to making a difference outside of yourself. Um, and, and I think it's this is a natural tendency that when do we turn against each other? When we're afraid for our own safety, for our own security. That's typically what happens in the world. And I think from a cultural point of view, that's like kind of from an identity point of view, when we don't know who we are, then we start lashing out at differences. But if we were much more confident in who we were, we would be able to celebrate diversity much better. And I think that this notion of, you know, this, this, this pressure to, to give up and to be stripped of anything particular, right, is not a healthy one. And it's creating this backlash of nationalism, etc. Because your typical, you know, modern person, you know, even if you have to remember that, you know, religion used to be the place where people were provided with that sense of identity. But, you know, religion is not necessarily on the rise um, due to various factors. So sports has become a place where people worship, right? You know, in Chelsea they had this, this sign that said, I think, uh, what's the, what's, it's called Bridge, what's the place? Stanford Bridge. Stanford Bridge is our church and Chelsea is our religion. Right. And that's where people go to sense that transcendence, that oneness with a large group of people. There is something very tribal. It's my team, not your team. There's a sense of almost religiosity to the commitment people have to their team, despite the fact that their team fails time and again, which from a strategic, logical point of view makes no <laughs> sense, right? You wouldn't be going... But there's pride you in that be, as well, isn't there? Yes, but you wouldn't be investing in a company if they were failing all the time. Yeah. So there's something, there's something unconditional about this connection. There's, something of, there's an element of worship here. Worship meaning, regardless of what I get from it, I will give to it faithfully all my days. So, so yes, there are places where we're getting that sense from, but ultimately... I really strongly believe that 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 that, that, the, that the, we, we live at this time of so so globalization. So there's a cultural backlash, and we also live in a time where I would I would say we're in a post secular world in a sense, right? Where where people are starting starting to say, wait wait a second, we threw away, we we discarded okay organized religion. But wait, there's certain things we we don't have anymore because of that. And how do we get that back, right? Things like belonging, things like values things like an identity, things like purpose and fulfillment, discipline, sacrifice, loyalty, resilience, even faith. Where do you get that from in a secular world? It's very hard to achieve that. That's what religion was giving people, plus some other things. If religion is practiced badly or, you're, or, you a, or you've been digesting a bad variation or you, you know you had a bad encounter with a person. There's a lot of reasons people move from religion, but and I'm not saying that 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 there are things that 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 the religious leadership could, could you know shouldn't. I, I believe they should do things differently. That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but the point is that and, and Alan de Botton, who's who's, who's in, I think a yeah. self-proclaimed atheist slash agnostic. I'm not quite sure, but he has a book called Atheism 2.0. I don't think you'd expect the rabbi to quote it necessarily, but where he talks about some of the fantastic things that religion offers, like the way he puts it, the, the synchronized encounters with very important ideas. Right? In the secular world, you, you know, you go to university and you're just assumed to remember whatever it is you study forever. It doesn't work like that. You need to have regular encounters with ideas, and that's what the Jewish calendar is. We organize our time around ideas. So Passover, we, on an annual basis at least, explore what it means to be, you know, freedom, freedom, liberation freedom from, freedom to, all of those important themes. So I think that 
something's going to give. I think that as I read in psychology today, people, young people are more open to radicalization, even people who had very privileged upbringings. They are sometimes Oxford graduates. And, and the reason for this is because they're not getting, you know, the secular, is it the, the secular um, utopian messianic vision that, you know, you can be, you know, you can get everything you need without religion. I don't think it's working. I'm not saying, therefore, that religion is, that everyone, you know, it's not about becoming religious. It's about understanding that we need to come up with a new way to find those ingredients to, to well-being and, and, and in my view this is across the board to all your listeners if you, if you do have a connection to a religion maybe try to explore it with a new, new set of eyes maybe try to find a new teacher or try, try, to, try to find a new more gentle rabbi, priest, imam whatever it might be and if you weren't born into a religious tradition try to create for yourself a community of like-minded individuals where you do foster these very important aspects of well-being because without them, I think, we do not have roots. And without roots, you can produce the most powerful, far-reaching tree and create the beautiful fruit of great value. But with just a little bit of storm, you can topple over. And I see this a lot. So I, I'd like to say there's, there's, uh, you know, there's wings and there's roots. And wings are the, you know, the, the tools of success we give our children, we give our ourselves to fly beyond our horizon, our station in life. Um, you know, socioeconomically, professionally, socially, etc. And that, that's really the American dream. It's, it's wings. Right? The American dream translates into wings. But what we have not been, get, we've not been talking about enough, I think, is roots, right? Is that support. Is, is because we live in such a fast-paced world, it's roots that are, I think, becoming more important even than wings. Because the, the, the new mechanisms for wings are all, all abounding. Technology has changed everything. Everything. To look at the, the, the most successful people in the world, they did not come from families of generational wealth, right? Wings abound, but roots do not. And that's why we need to start rethinking well-being and, and coming up with new strategies to foster identity, belonging, values, and a certain sense of transcendence because the science that's coming in is fantastic. It's amazing. It's really reinforcing a lot of those religious principles or principles couched in religious terminology like chesed, compassion, tzedakah, righteousness. You know, there's, there's actual science that says that we're happier with the dollar we give than the dollar we take. There's science that says that gratitude will allow you to live longer. The science that says, there's a Harvard study, an amazing study that says that the, the one common denominator in people who, who, are, who, are, who are interviewed over the course of their entire lifetime, from let's say age 15 till age 90, was that it's relationships that means the most to people the end of the day and these help people fight way, uh, you know retain their mental health into the later years and so on so where are we gonna where are we so the tools for good, healthy relationships also I think come from some of those character traits like discipline like compromise and we live in an era of, of, of hyper individuality where we have we have in the spirit of self-actualization I think have lost a bit of touch with things like uh, sacrifice, like commitment to the point where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm receiving less than I'm giving, you know, unconditional, you know, maturity in the sense of egolessness. A lot of these values that we attribute to the old world, um, and Is we're that running because from. we're also 
well, not we're all we're in a blanket kind of statement, but yeah. because a lot of people are kind of self-focused. It's yeah, which was a good thing. It came, it was an important revolution. Yeah. It was because there was too much conformity and there was too little self-expression. And self-expression is part of, part of, is part of what makes you yourself, which is beautiful. Judaism very strongly believes in individual self-expression. We're, the power of the individual is very, very prominent in Judaism. But the, the best statement I can think of to sum it up is the statement of Hillel, who famously said, if, not, if I am not for myself, who will be? But if I am only for myself, what am I? There you have it. Amazing, right? Amazing. You have to be, you have to establish your identity. You have to establish yourself. But once you do, if you're only about yourself, then what are you? So I think it's, there's a, these are some of the important themes. I mean, um, so again, globalization, uh, which is a fantastic thing because it creates the tools of true impact of global proportions. But as we know, it can also feed other negative things into this global mechanism or machine. Um, so there's this backlash to that. There's also the post-secular reality where combined with hyper-individualism, which is, I think, goes hand in hand with secularism in a sense, has created a real void. And I think that people are looking now more and more to spirituality or to meditation. And I believe that the time has come for a new renaissance, a new revolution. Right? I think there was a fitness, physical fitness revolution some 20, 30, I don't know exactly when, years ago. And today any self-respecting modern person goes to the gym three times a week, is much more health conscious than ever before. And that's an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, achievement from a societal point of view. People are more focused because they're more aware of the benefits of living a physically healthy life. But I think we need to add and build on that, talk more about a spiritual or well-being, psychological, emotional revolution whereby just as one goes to the gym three times a week religiously, similarly, one creates certain um, patterns or behaviors or communities, allocates certain time to devote oneself to their sense of purpose, their sense of mission, their sense of belonging, their identity. And I think that ultimately the body is only a body. It's, it, it's what drives that body. The body is like a vehicle. It's, it's who's in the driver's seat and where are you going? That's, I think, it's the why, not the, not the what or the how of life. It's, it's why I'm here. Those are things that I think we could spend more time on. And Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is, is, is I think, quite, quite a nice, you know, quite a nice um, psychological backdrop for some of these ideas. I think that, that establishes the meaningfulness aspect or factor in life, which ultimately is what is, in his words, is the most powerful f- driver in, in life at all, in, in life at large. So let me sum, let me put this into practical terms. So make every eff- we should be making more effort or every effort to first of all figure out who we are, what makes us unique, and uh, to understand that we need to explore our passion, our talent, our abilities, because those are indicators from God as to what our personal direction or life is, life mission is about. And to take that and, 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 and bring that into our life circumstances, right? Where are we and, uh, in life, right? Why are we in this place? We could have been in that place. Why was I born to this family? I could have been born to another. Why was I born to this tradition? I could have been born to another. And, and, and try to imbue that with a sense of purposefulness and meaningfulness. And take that and turn it into uh, an identity. And then turn it into a purpose. 
and make every effort to fulfill that purpose and express that identity, all in the spirit of bringing the wider world one step further towards the uh, that time where we will experience true oneness. Mm. Wow. A great way to uh, kind of round out that conversation. Um, I'm on board for the, the uh, renaissance and the revolution, by the way. Um, absolutely. Um, Rabbi Mendel, thank you so much for sharing all this with me. I feel like we could probably just sit here and talk for hours. Um, but I am mindful of letting you get on with your day. Uh, I finish all of my conversations with one question, which is what makes you silly? What makes me silly? I think I'm not silly enough, unfortunately. I need, to, I need to be more silly. What makes me silly? That's a very interesting question. My children could make me silly. I think probably a lot of people would say that because they, they allow me to be silly rather than making me silly. I think we're all silly at heart, or we'd like to be silly at heart. And when you're around children and there's no ears, you could just be. But um, also it's interesting when I travel and... That's a very interesting thing. I never linked silly to like joy, feeling alive. Yeah. But I guess there's a different silly for everyone. Absolutely. And 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 and, I, and let me just, if you don't mind, let me just ser- make that a bit more serious. <laughs> I hate to do that, but this is the counter. You're, I mean, I'm doing the very opposite of yeah. being silly, but. Which is pretty silly. Which is pretty. Silly. <laughs> So there's actually a beautiful discourse that the Rebbe gives where he talks about, you know, um, where he talks about negative silly and positive silly, evil silly and holy silly. Silly means doing something that's not rational, that's senseless. And unfortunately in the world we live in there's a lot of evil silly. There's a lot of senseless hatred, there's a lot of senseless cruelty, a lot of senseless taking of life. And, and the way he would always say is that when something like that happens, the way to counter that is not by just not by not being silly. And that's what we would say. Let's be not silly. Or let's educate the silly ones to be non-silly. Yeah. No, he said, be silly, <laughs> but be positive silly. Go crazy. Yeah. Be wholly silly. Do senseless acts of goodness and kindness. So to all the listeners out there, stop listening right now. Get out there. <laughs> take some leftover food and go visit a homeless shelter. Pick up the phone and call your parent or your sibling who you haven't spoken to for a year because of some silly, nonsensical miscommunication, probably. Or if not, if you have every reason to be upset with them, so it's not silly, do something silly by calling them up and simply saying, Dad, Mom, Honey, my child, I love you so much. Let's get beyond that. Let's be silly together. Yeah. And if this world were more silly in a good way, We'd hell have a great laugh, and we'd laugh our way into uh, the messianic era of silliness. <laughs> Thank you so much. A real pleasure. Mm-hmm.